It's Eddie. Appreciate it. Hey, guys. See y'all. We are in our vision series, and we are kicking off our third circle. Usually, we put them up there. I'm going to spare you putting it up on the screen uh, this time. But we, uh, we set out our vision series to be life with God, life with each other, and lights in the world. And so this is just totally based off of our desire to follow Jesus into loving God and loving others. Um, and so when we see Jesus coming in the world, we see him doing those things, having a life with God, life with his Father, creating community, and then moving out into the world. So one thing before we jump into this text that I, I want to highlight that I think is really important for us is we just got done talking about life with each other, life, life with God, many sermons on that, and life with each other. And before we jump into lights in the world, I just want to make the point that those pieces are so crucial for us as we talk about lights in the world because for us, those places, as, our, as we seek God together and as we seek God individually, are places where we are formed, where we become disciples. We are disciples of Jesus and we're formed more into his image. Um, and that is the blessing into the world. There's a quote that every time I hear it, uh, I like it a little bit more. It's by a Christian author named Dallas Willard. And he says, discipleship is for the church and disciples are for the world. And I love that because when I think about what the world, the broken, hurting world that I encounter every day, when I think about what they need, they don't need Jake. They need to encounter Jesus through Jake. They need me to be formed more into the image of Jesus so that when I step out into the world, they're encountering someone that has been radically changed by the love and mercy and grace of God. Um, and so as we seek God individually and we seek God together, um, that is the blessing that we bring to the world. It, it started all the way back when, when God called Abraham out and set Israel apart. Um, he said that they would be blessed to be a blessing. And so he carries that on through the Messiah and his people who are us as we follow Jesus together. So I wanna make mention of that. It's really important, those two pieces and all the content that we've gone through, um, it's, it's integral into us stepping out of lights. It's not separate. Those aren't, all, all of these things aren't separate things. These are all a part of following Jesus. And in fact, our formation, our discipleship, becoming more like Christ, uh, happens so much as we step out into the world that doesn't know him, that's lost, that doesn't know that there's hope and doesn't know that the kingdom of God has come near. So let me pray real quick. Father, thank you for this space. Thank you for this time. Thank you that we get to talk about um, being lights in the world and that um, apart from you, Jesus, we would all still be sitting in darkness. And I just want to receive, God, your amazing love for me that apart from you coming, Jesus, apart from you entering into my mess, I would be lost. Um, it's your grace. It's your love. It's nothing that I've done, nothing that we could do. And so when we think about, Father, this um, calling to be lights in the world, to move into the world as you step into the world, Jesus. Um, may we recognize your amazing love for us and that the privilege of being your witness, Jesus, is because you loved us first. So we just receive that in this room. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd speak. I ask that you make these things clear and I ask that um, it wouldn't just be my words, but you would speak to us and you would leave us um, different um, as we walk out more in love with you. Um, and we are so grateful for what you're doing here. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know who you guys think um, the uh, greatest missionary in Christian history is. 
Um, some of you wouldn't be able to name a uh, Christian mis uh, missionary in history, and that's totally fine. Some of you may have uh, missionary trading cards, and that's fine too. Um, a little weird, but also fine. Um, and the answer to that question is the answer to the joke. You guys have probably heard this. Um, my parents told me it growing up where the Sunday school teacher is teaching kids in the Sunday school class, and he wants to use a squirrel as an illustration. He goes, raise your hand if you know what this thing is. Um, it is brown or gray, it's small, it lives in trees, it eats nuts, um, and it has a big bushy tail. And the kid, boy, little boy, raises his hand um, to give the answer, and he says, it really sounds like a squirrel, but I'm gonna go with Jesus. And that's the answer that we have today. Um, because all throughout John, as we look at this text, and as we look at John, um, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is constantly referred to as the sent one. I mean, the most famous verse that we have that the whole, our whole culture probably knows is that for God so loved the world that he sent. Who did he send? He sent Jesus. So Jesus constantly through John, you'll see it over and over again, that he's the sent one. And then we're gonna see here um, in these passages, he becomes a sender. He becomes the sender. And the sender of who? We're gonna read about it. So we're gonna get into our text <clears throat> in first we're gonna set the scene. So John 20, 19 through, 21, 19 through 22. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. So to set the scene, um, the disciples had all abandoned Jesus um, at his hour of greatest need um, as he was betrayed over to the religious leaders um, tortured, crucified, and killed, but he rose again. And so we're not going through that story. That's, that's what happened. And before the disciples knew that this happened, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdala, and, and she came and told them. They didn't believe her. Um, and so they're all huddled in this room, and there's a locked door because they are terrified. And there's no faith there. Even though Jesus told them he had to die, and he was going to rise again, they didn't believe it. And so they were terrified, and they're huddled in their little room little locked door. And I don't know about you guys, I just love imagining this scene um, because they're scared, they're terrified. And Jesus in his resurrected body in ways that we don't fully understand yet because he was physically there, uh, was able to bypass locked doors. And he just shows up right in, the, right in the middle of them. I can't imagine how terrified they would be at that moment. And so it's beautiful that when Jesus, um, when he, he appears, he says, Peace, <laughs> peace be with you. And we're gonna talk about that in a second. Um, one quick thing I wanna address here is that this scene with these disciples in the room, um, there's some debate on who was in that room. It could have been just the 10, which minus Judas and minus Thomas, because we, we find out that Thomas wasn't there and Jesus appeared to him later. Um, but there's a lot of evidence that it was probably more than, the, than just the apostles in that room as well. Um, the parallel passage to this story is in Luke 24. Um, and those verses say that there were two, guys, two people on a road um, and Jesus appears to them. He opens the scripture to them. He opens their eyes. And then when they sit down to eat with him, he reveals himself to them. And it says, they went to the apostles and they said, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road, how he had made themself, himself known by the breaking of bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be to you. 
So we think this is probably a room that obviously included the disciples minus Thomas and probably some more, the apostles minus Thomas and some more disciples. Um, But the point in this is that we see throughout the scripture and throughout the New Testament that what Jesus is about to impart to these people in this room applies to all disciples. Just like we take the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples. He, he gave that to the 11, um, but we, he extends out to us to make disciples. So as Jesus is about to speak these things in John 20, they extend out to us all of those that would follow Jesus. One important distinction though as well, and I love that the sermon we had before this was on the body of Christ. Steve laid out beautifully that we are the body of Christ with individual members, different roles, different giftings, but we are one body. So the apostles in this calling that Jesus is about to lay down had a unique role, and so do we have a unique role. And all of our roles in this call to be on mission with Jesus, who we're about to talk about, will be similar in some ways, but it'll look different because of our roles, because of our gifting, and because of our calling and where we're at and where we live. So I wanna make that important distinction Um, When he enters in, I think it's really important that he comes with this word, this forceful word, peace be with you. He showed that he was not holding their failures against them. The last encounter that they had with Jesus before he shows up in this room was utter failure. They had abandoned their Lord and their rabbi who had loved them from start to finish. He had loved them from start to finish, and in his greatest time of need, they were gone. He told them they were. Peter was very stubborn, so he said, that's not gonna be me, and Jesus doubled down, you're gonna deny me three times, and he did. And he shows up, and he doesn't say, hey guys, what happened? (laughs) What's going on? He says, peace, and he's gonna repeat it here again. And I think it's important, because as he calls us into his mission, um, sometimes we can, we can think about, oh, look at all the ways that I've failed you. Jesus didn't address any of that. He didn't address any of it. He called them into what he was doing. He knew how they had failed him. And the one thing he speaks to them is peace. So he enters in, and uh, I love that they're in this locked door. There's a, there's a New Testament scholar, Andrew Lincoln. He says, the reception of this gift of peace provides a sense of ultimate security that no locked doors can assure. I I love it because the next verse he says, and with this, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the understatement of all the Bible, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He showed them his physical body, his resurrected body, with holes in his hands, the marks of his love and his sacrifice, that would be the salvation of the whole world. And he showed them that nothing now could separate them from the love of God. That death didn't stop Jesus. And he had already told them in John 6, because I live, because I'm in you and that I live, you also will live. So Jesus, though death had taken him, though they were defeated and they were cowering in locked doors in a room, scared for their lives, He flips the tables in a moment and he shows them death couldn't hold me back from you. Death couldn't hold me and death won't hold you. So now the mission I'm about to send you on, you're gonna need that type of peace. 
You're going to need that type of assurance that no matter what happens, no matter where you go, no matter what I call you to, nothing will keep you from me. And so that's what he showed them in a physical form. And again, when he moves into the next statement that we're going to focus on, he repeats it. He says, peace be with you. So he enters in and he says, peace. And then he shows them, I'm alive. Death couldn't hold me down. And because you're my disciples, death won't be able to hold you either. And in fact, when you do die, and when you do leave this home, uh, you will be with me. And Paul bears that out in the New Testament. That's the hope that the disciples knew. And he repeats it again. Peace be with you. And he says these remarkable words. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We're going to come back to this verse and focus on it a little bit, but I do want to make mention of something important that um, there are aspects of Jesus' mission that are totally unique to him, that aren't ours. Quite specifically, the finished work of the cross. He doesn't ask us to die for the sins of the world. He did that. He accomplished that once for all. He doesn't have to do it again. He finished that work, and he opened the door for all people to step into the kingdom of God through repentance and forgiveness of their sins and to enter into life with God here and now and forever and forever into eternity. And so this, this is, I think, said well by um, scholar N.T. Wright. He said, there is a difference in the world between something being achieved and something being implemented. The composer achieves the writing and the music. The performers implement it. I think that, that Jesus bought this for us, that we would be with God, be able to step into mission with him. But though it's unique, that mission is unique to him, he still says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. He said this before to the Father when he was praying, before he died, before he went to be tortured and killed, he was praying in John 17, and he said these words in John 17, 18, as you sent me into the world, Father, so I have sent them into the world. And moving on to the, the last verse in our passage. And when he said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. There's some scholarly debate on what actually happened at this moment. When Jesus breathed on his disciples in this, in the apostles in this moment, he breathed on them. What happened? Did they actually receive the Spirit? Was this a, a precursor to what was going to come? We know in Acts, when the Holy Spirit came with power, that they would be his witnesses. Um, and so there's some debate. I, I lean towards it being more of a precursor um, event that he was pointing to what would, ha what would happen. Um, but no matter what side you take on that, the reality is the Holy Spirit did come. And it came and was available for all people. Um, and it fell in the book of Acts, and, and, and Jesus opened the door for that. But one of the things that I think is probably the most important in this verse, because he's speaking in this room to good Jewish people, is that they, know, they would know their scriptures. And when he said he breathed on them, they would have been immediately taken back to Genesis chapter 2. 
Um, the same Greek word, there's a Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, and the same Greek word um, for breathed on him, on them, was used in this, um, the Greek Old Testament in Genesis 2-7, when God formed man. And it says, the Lord God, Genesis 2-7, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. What Jesus was pointing to is that as the Father was sent, has sent him, he was sending them. They needed to be made new. They couldn't carry on this mission and, and, and join Jesus in what he was doing unless they were made into new creations. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus was pointing to in the same way that God breathed into Adam the breath of life and it became a living creature. In the same way, we are going from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We're becoming new creatures created in the image of Christ, in the image of the Messiah, in the image of Jesus who lived this life and brought the reality of God's kingdom into our broken and broken and, and hurting world. So <clears throat> he breathes on them. It's pointing to what would happen in Acts. And then again, we're gonna go back to this verse. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus, in that moment, moment knew he wasn't telling the disciples that he was sending them to die for the sins of the world. He knew that, but he meant something. He meant that he was sending them in the same way that the Father had sent him. Jesus brought heaven to earth. God came to us, and he brought the reality of the kingdom of God to bear on a broken world. And now he sends us as his representatives, his body, his light into a dark and broken world to bring the reality of the kingdom to bear on our world today. When Jesus stepped onto the scene, he kept saying, there's good news. He said, repent, turn from your sins. There's good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he kept proclaiming it and he kept demonstrating it. He kept going to the poor and the marginalized, the ones the religious leaders had ostracized and set aside and said, the life that God has for our people, Israel, is not for you. And Jesus kept going to those people and he kept healing diseases. He kept casting out demons. He says, if, if by the finger of God, the spirits are cast out, then the kingdom of God has come, come upon you. So he kept proclaiming the good news that God had come near and he kept demonstrating it in reality in the way that he lived. And he kept teaching about it. If here's a new way to live, a way of love, a way of loving your neighbor as yourself. And so I find it really interesting in, in the first verse of Acts. Um, Acts is written by a guy named Luke, and he wrote it to a guy named Theophilus, which is an awesome name. It's a great name. Um, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke, which was the story of Jesus. Um, and he wrote a second. He wrote, he wrote a sequel. It was Acts. And in, in his um, intro to Theophilus, he said, in the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. 
I love thinking about that. He's alluding to the fact Jesus wasn't done. He died, he rose again, he ascended to the Father, but he wasn't done doing his work. And then it said, wait, he was telling his disciples, wait, because you're gonna receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses to the entire world. You will be my representatives on earth now. You will be now the conduits of the kingdom of God here on earth where Jesus had brought it to us and he invites us in. He's saying in the same way, you'll go. We, um, <clears throat> uh, the Lees and our kids go to the same school and Matt Lee has started an awesome after school thing every other Friday at the school our kids both go to. So we, uh, first time I went was last Friday, I think. Um, don't correct me if I'm wrong, Matt. I don't wanna hear you. Um, and so we did a bunch of things and we played at the end. We played a game in the end. We played tag at the end. Um, and so it was awesome, but we played two versions of tag. Um, the first time we played freeze tag, which freeze tag, if you haven't played freeze tag, you missed out on some, something in childhood, I don't know. Um, if you're tagged, you're frozen, you stop, you don't move. Um, but then we played another version of tag after that called, they called it infection tag. I don't know if you guys had a word. We called it zombie tag. Um, you don't have to give me feedback, but it was, uh, I called it zombie tag. They called it an infection tag. Infection tag is you get tagged and now you're a tagger. Now you're in the game and now you're moving and you're tagging other people and you're doing that. Um, I think for a lot of us, and, and, and self, myself included, um, somehow grew up with, with some version or thought of Christianity that is more like freeze tag than infection tag. So if you're tagged or saved, you stop because you've got forgiveness of sins in heaven when you die, and it doesn't necessarily apply to your life now. Just try to do good. Forgiveness of sins in heaven, being with Jesus when we die, is the reality of the gospel. It is true, and it is beautiful, and it is for us. It is for all who accept Jesus as their Savior and Lord. But Jesus was inviting, when, you, when, he was, when we're tagged, it's not freeze, not wait until heaven. It's you're in the game now. You are now representatives, witnesses, by the power of the Holy Spirit filling you, you are now witnesses to the reality of Jesus and what he did because it's evidence in our lives, changed lives, hope, joy, peace, authority, healing, where demonic powers don't have the last say because Jesus lives in us and he's been given all authority in the heavens and on the earth. And if we're in Christ, he gives us that same authority and he calls us to step into it. So when, when we're tagged, when he comes and he meets us at our lowest, not because we were good or because we had it all together, but because he loved us, we now enter the game. We now move as the Father has sent Jesus, he sends us. He sends us to be agents of reconciliation. We are now his new creation we reflect Jesus into the world. He came and he said, I am the light of the world. And then he said, you are the light of the world. It's because he's in us. And so he wants us to recognize now we have a new identity, to join him and partner, him, partner with him 
in the work that he's doing in the world now. When God created Adam and Eve, he meant for them to be God's representative. He said, I created them in my image. He created them to be his representatives to go, I want you to be my representatives. I'm gonna call you a kingdom of priests, represent God into the world. They failed. And then in comes God himself. God himself to establish this. God himself to save us and rescue us in a way the law never could because of our wickedness, because of our sin. But he solves that problem by dying on the cross, by washing us and giving us his very spirit where it says now we're given a heart of flesh where we actually desire the things of God. We actually desire to live in the things and the ways that Jesus lived. Not as obligation, not as rules, but a new heart, a recreation into the image of Christ himself. When Jesus stepped into his ministry, he picked up the scroll of Isaiah and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He is carrying his mission to a lost world through us, those that are separated from God, that need to know, apart from Jesus and and the forgiveness of their sins, they will be separated from God forever. But Jesus has made a way, and we can know him now, and we can live in that same life, and then he invites us, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, to be ambassadors for Christ, make God making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. I think it's really important as we talk about this, if God is sending us as the Father sent Jesus to understand our motive for this, because I, I know us, I know me, we can very easily just add this onto the list of things that we're supposed to be doing as Christians. I'm already overwhelmed, I'm already piled on and all the things that I'm not doing well, so why don't you, Jake, just give me another thing that I'm not doing well? That would be, that would be wonderful, that's what I'm here to do. No, I'm not here to do that. Our motive for mission Our motive to move out as lights into the world, to be his agents, to see the kingdom come, is the motive for all of our obedience to Jesus. It's love for him. It's love for him. That's why we started with the life with God peace. We have to know how he has loved us. And when he meets us in that place, in its grace, in its mercy, and it's what we don't deserve, man, we love Jesus. And if we love Jesus, we wanna be with him. Leslie Newbegin is a uh, missiologist. Uh, he, he was a really great thinker in the world of Christian missions. Um, and he, this is a quote that he had, the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is, on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. I want that. I think it's important though we all have different roles to play in this mission as God is partnering with Jesus in the work that he's doing in this world, will be different, it'll be different roles. We need to recognize how Jesus stepped into the world because that will characterize, no matter what our role is, it will characterize what we're doing. And I think that characteristic above everything else was compassion. 
It was compassion. There's a quote, I think, on the next slide from a, a theologian named B.B. Warfield. It says the emo- she did an extensive study on the emotional life of Jesus. Very extensive and hard to read. And he said the deepest, oh, he said, sorry, excuse me. He said the emotion which should naturally, we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to Jesus, whose whole life was a mission of mercy, is no doubt compassion. In point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. Um, and we'll go to the next slide. i just read this from Matthew 9, uh, 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I think this is an incredibly important piece um, for us to think about as we move into a desire to move outward into a hurting, lost world around us. Um, and I think it's so important that I'm going to stop talking about it um, because next week uh, you have the privilege of Randy Schrader who's going to talk about taking, that, taking on the eyes of Christ and stepping in and seeing people as Jesus saw them. And this is how he saw them, with eyes of compassion, with eyes when the Pharisees were questioning him, why, do you, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? He says, I can't, the, 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 the well don't need a physician, the sick need a doctor. And, and go and learn what this means. I don't desire sacrifice, I desire mercy and compassion. I came not for the righteous, but for the sinner. So Randy's gonna take that. <laughs> so the question that um, I wanna focus on um, is uh, what do we do? So if this is a case, if this is the reality, if I'm a follower of Jesus and this is his call for me, uh, what do I do? Because it is easy for us to like, what's the task list and how do we check this off, right? So what do we do? And I have great news for you. I have three points, which is the best number of points. So there's three points and they all start with the same letter. So this is just gonna be so easy. Y'all are gonna, it's gonna be great, I promise. Um, I think the most important um, piece um, is, uh, is the first thing we need to do. It's the thing we need to do in the middle. It's the thing we need to do at the end, and that's pray. It's prayer. If we don't go to God first, who is the one who sent his son for the love of the world, we will not go into the world with the heart that God has for the world. Okay, so the first thing we have to do is prayer. And for this, I wanna talk about a guy named David Wilkerson. I don't know if you guys know that name. Uh, there's an old book um, written called The Cross and the Switchblade. It's an incredible story. It's a beautiful story um, of what God did through this man named David Wilkerson. And I'm gonna give you a very quick summary. David was a very content pastor in a small Philadelphia, oh, Pennsylvania church, not in Philadelphia. Out, out of that, just very small mountain town, um, he was content um, with his little pastoring, pastoring this little church, um, and God had different plans for him. He ended up stepping into an incredible ministry uh, to ruthless t- 
teenage gangs in New York City in the 1950s when this was very intense. So I can't give you a whole story. If you want to learn more about it, you can read the book. It's a fantastic book. Um, but it's an incredible ministry. And, and some of you guys may have heard of Teen Challenge, um, which helps transform the lives um, of these young people hooked on drugs, um, terrible backgrounds, terrible family life in the inner city of New York. Um, and Teen Challenge carried on for years and years. Teen Challenge transforms hundreds of thousands of lives. And in the world today, 24,000 men and women are currently in a center being set free by the power of Christ. Its effect has been re repeatedly researched and documented, and its results have proven to be quite outstanding. In fact, unparalleled as a recovery program in its efficiency. So incredible story. God did amazing things, um, supernatural stuff. Um, he transformed these kids' lives he never should have been able to touch. Um, but I want to talk about where it started. Again, this is 1950, and I just want to read a little excerpt at the beginning of what happened with this book with David. It was nearly midnight when David rose to turn off the television. His wife and his children were already in bed, Pastor Wilkerson always stayed up a little later than the rest of his family. He found that he needed a couple hours alone to wind down, a time when the house was quiet and he could stop thinking about other people's problems, stop thinking about everything. That's where the TV came in. He didn't feel like going to bed yet, so he went to his office and he sat down in the chair. And he thought, how many hours do I spend in front of a television every night? It's at least a couple, two hours a day, seven days, that's 14 hours a week. His eyebrows rose with a realization. What would happen if I spent that time praying? His thoughts instantly filled with objections. I watch TV because I'm tired. I can't be a pastor all the time, can I? Moving through the story, God leads him to put his TV on sale on something called a newspaper. Um, <laughs> and, and he asked for confirmations um, as soon as he put the ad in the newspaper, 30 minutes later, someone came and picked up his TV. He made all these deals with God. Um, and the story goes on. He, he went without his TV, and he, he did. He spent that time praying. Um, one night along that journey, and he replaced that time, uh, those two hours, uh, instead of TV, he replaced it with praying. And in his prayer time, he felt the Lord drawing him to this Time magazine. It was in 1955, I believe, um, and he, he didn't think it was God, and then he kept feeling called to the magazine, so he, he opened it up, and, and as soon as he opened the magazine, he saw a pen drawing of a trial taking place 350 miles away in New York City, a place he had never been. The eyes of one of the seven figures in the drawing on trial for murder caught his attention. The look in the boy's eyes was one of bewilderment, hatred, and despair. The young pastor, David, began to cry. He said aloud to himself, what's the matter with me? These boys were all teenagers and they were members of a gang called the Dragons on trial for murdering a 15-year-old dis disabled boy in a park. The story revolted me, David goes on. It turned my stomach. In our little mountain town, such things seem mercifully unbelievable. That's why I was dumbfounded by the thought that sprang suddenly into my head, full-blown, as though it had come into me from somewhere else. Go to New York City and help those boys. And the rest of the story goes on, and he did help those boys. But it wasn't him. 
If you read the story, you'll find out it was not him. He didn't have the power to do it. Jesus moved near to those teenage gang members, and he brought the hope of the good news of the kingdom of God through David Wilkerson. And I think for us, I think one of the biggest questions, our biggest roles we have to play in this is, are we paying attention long enough for God to birth something in us? Not the same thing that David walked into, but are we paying attention long enough for God to birth something in us? We bought our house, I think, is it 2012, Kara? It's been however many years that is. We've been in our house for uh, at least 10 years. Um, and uh, it's the only house we've ever bought, bought. And I love this house, it's wonderful. It's the only house I've ever known, so maybe another house would be better, but I love this house. Um, it's wonderful. Our walls are, are multicolored. They used to be one color, and then we have three kids, and they become many colors. Um, and so it's a wonderful house, of amazing memories, and I love it. The, the one thing that I would not have thought to think about when I stepped into our house um, was how is the insulation? Maybe you guys think about that. I was very, very naive um, in not thinking about insulation. Oh, this is a great house. Let's do it. Let's go. And over the years, I realized insulation is very important. I don't think our walls have, to make it worse, we have single pane windows, yes. Single pane windows. You can hear the humidity and heat laughing as it moves through <laughs> the very permeable single pane window. Um, and so when, in the summer, when we turn our AC on, I can set it to 63 degrees um, and it will remain 79 degrees in our house all throughout the summer. Um, and there is nothing I can do. Kara's like, it's so hot in here. I've turned it down all the way. We can't turn it down any lower. Um, and the AC unit simply can't keep up. And the one thing I, I think about for our lives, and this applies to me, is um, the amount of inputs that we have in our life. The ability for us to have so many worldly inputs in our lives is incredible. David Wilkerson had a TV smaller than your iPad and it had four channels on it. We have a computer in our pocket that has literally inexhaustible entertainment, we have social media that can keep us distracted constantly, literally constantly. And this is, I'm, I'm in this, right? Um, and, and, and so many times we, we approach this question of content or how much Netflix or how much social media, and we, we ask the question, um, how much is okay, how much is okay? I think we just need to change the question to, what do I want? What do I want with my life? What do I want my life to look like? And if I wanna live with Jesus near him on adventure and mission with him, as costly as that may be, it's what I was made for. If I want that, then I can make those decisions based on that desire. David made those decisions based on that desire. It's not about what's okay and what's right and wrong here. And I'm not talking about sinful stuff. It needs to be addressed too. Um, we can absorb a lot of sinful content. But even just news, the amount of news we can consume is endless. And so we simply can ask our questions from a different point of view of our desire for a Lord, desire to see him work, desire to see his kingdom come to see the lost and the hurting and the broken and the people that Jesus came for, namely you and me, find that same hope and that same life and that same adventure 
to be tagged and to set on mission with Jesus by his side. There's a quote, again, from our, our, our buddy Leslie Newbegin that I think is so perfect um, for this um, idea of prayer and communion with God. He says, all true vitality in the work of mission depends in the last analysis upon the secret springs of supernatural life, which they know who give time to communion with God. All true witness to Christ is the overflowing of a reality too great to be contained. It has its source in a life of adoration and intercession. Any real power that God may give them will come through those secret channels which are in this age, as in every age, the true means of blessing for the world. The next P we have is proximity. Um, because we can pray and we can pray, but um, David prayed and then God gave him somewhere to go and gave him a people to get close to. Um, and so I think the next piece is proximity. Are we getting close? Um, uh, there's a next slide, I think, if we could put up the next slide, there's gonna be a picture of something. There it is. I don't know if you guys knew about this. I didn't know about this until I read a little book we're gonna talk about. This is called The Kulon Walled City. It was in Hong Kong um, in, the, in the 1950s. Um, this uh, incredible um, city sprung up. Um, it is a six-acre piece of land. It no longer exists. It was a six-acre piece of land that at its peak was the most densely populated city on earth with the equivalent of 1.9 million residents per square kilometer compared to Hong Kong's overall density of 6,700 residents per square kilometer. In the 1950s, through a series of events with disputes between British, Chinese, and Hong Kong government, no country claimed this place as their territory. It became a slum of slums. No infrastructure, no government, no police. It housed 350 buildings, all between 10 and 14 stories high, with more than 33,000 residents. It became governed by no one except for powerful gangs. There was, you can go to the next slide, is another picture of it. Um, there was no law to speak of, speaking of the Kulon Walled City. There was no law to speak of. It was an anarchist society, self-regulating and self-determining. It was a colony within a colony, a city within a city, a tiny block of territory, at once contest, contested and neglected. It was known as the Kulon, uh, Kowloon, excuse me, Kowloon Walled City, um, but locals called it something else, the City of Darkness. You can go to the next slide. Um, there's uh, uh, this book called Chasing the Dragon. Um, by my missionary hero, and if I have her trading card, I'm not trading it to you. Her name's Jackie Pollinger, um, and uh, an incredible um, woman. And I don't have time to get into her story, but I would say, again, read the story. It's beautiful. Um, Daniel Miller will give you a testimony of that if you need to talk to Daniel. Get somebody's word for it other than me. Um, uh, Jackie uh, is this incredible lady um, from uh, England, from the UK, um, and she got saved and she was a single lady. And to make a long story short, she felt God's call on her life to be a missionary. She didn't know where, she thought it was Africa. Um, and then through a dream and a prophecy, it felt very clear that she was supposed to go to Hong Kong, but there was no mission agency to send her, nothing that she could do. So she got on a boat, single woman, uh, no support. Um, 1960, no internet, no cell phone. She's headed to Hong Kong. 
And so she shows up with just a love for Jesus and a desire um, to share that good news that she had received. Um, and so then, as Jackie got uh, to Hong Kong, she found out about the Kulon, uh, Kowloon walled city. And um, she, she didn't know what to think. She, she stepped into it, and I'm just gonna read to you her experience as she stepped in. Jackie's first visit to the Kow, Kowloon walled city brought her through a narrow gap between outside shops where she started down a slime-covered passageway. I will never forget the darkness and the smell. The darkness was startling after the glaring sunlight outside. She strode gingerly through the dank labyrinth corridors so as not to puncture her foot on shattered glass or many discarded needles. Splatters of blood lined the damp floors and, mingle, and mingled with human feces. She walked on head down in case someone chose to empty their chamber pot from overhead. Her eyes grew wide at each appalling sight, the multi-storied slum, illegal dog restaurants, um, gambling dens, dingy corners crowded with heroin addicts. This walled city, no government, no police, was ruled by the gangs. And the gangs ruled because they had control of the heroin, they had a control of the opium. And so the walled city was filled with people completely addicted to heroin, um, becoming drug dealers to support their habit, um, totally sitting in literal and spiritual darkness. Um, and Jackie stepped in to the Kowloon Walled City, and the story is remarkable. She stepped in, um, and again, Jesus stepped in. The kingdom of God appeared. And those who were discarded by the world, waiting to die, encountered hope. Encountered hope, and what I love about it is that um, Jackie didn't see them, uh, Jesus saw them. And because Jackie belonged to Jesus, she ended up there. I think that's important for us to recognize and realize. And amazing things started happening. The worst of the worst, the gang members, the drug dealers started getting saved. She would share with them the gospel and they would come to receive Jesus as their Lord. <laughs> and then they had a problem. They were addicted to heroin and the uh, withdrawals on heroin are so intense that many of them would die during the withdrawals. So you couldn't get through with the withdrawals. It was just an endless cycle of torment and darkness and torture. But as she encountered these people, they received Jesus as Lord. And one of the unique things that happened is they received Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit. And each one of them received a prayer language. Each one of them received a gift of tongues in this setting. And she invited them to pray in their prayer language when they were going through withdrawals. And to a person, every one of them that would pray when they were going through withdrawals, didn't have withdrawals. And they were able to come through that experience and be set free from drugs because of the power of Jesus and follow him and continue the mission of Jesus into their own gangs and into their own walled city um, and share the light of Jesus. And so I just wanna make the point on this as I share one last quote from Jackie. It's so important, the proximity, because before we even feel it, before we even encounter maybe the compassion for people God is calling us to, he's calling us to come close. He's just calling us to step near, not with answers, not on how, to, how do I fix this problem? This is very messy, what do I do? He's just calling you to step close, to come near and trust him that he's gonna act. So this is Jackie. 
saying, the second time I went into the walled city, I had this wonderful feeling inside, like the thrill you get on your birthday. I found myself wondering why I was so happy. And the next time I went to the walled city, I had the exact same sensation. This was not reasonable of all the revolting places in the world. And yet, nearly every time I was in that underground city over the next dozen years, I felt the same joy. I had caught a glimpse of it at confirmation. And again, when I really accepted Jesus in my life, and now I found it in this profane place. And why it's so beautiful to me is I know it's Jesus. Even as I think about the swans, even as I think about Peter flying an airplane in South Sudan to these villages that no one um, cares to find, it's Jesus seeking these people out. It's Jesus moving here. It's Jesus calling Peter and the swans close to the darkness to bring light. The last P that we have is power. First Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but power. In Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's very clear in David's story. It's very clear in Jackie's story. It's very clear in the book of Acts. It's very clear in our story that it's the power of Christ. It's the power of Jesus through us that makes the difference. So as we pray and allow God to birth something in us, his compassion for a hurting world, we just go close. We're not with answers just because we wanna be with him where he is and because we love him, but we can expect him to show up. And sometimes that's the hardest piece for me, to expect him to show up, for him to expect him to be there. It's a quote that I love that my friend Titus says, I don't know the source, I forgot. Um, it says that unbelief is safe because it almost always gets what, it's, what it expects. And I found that to be true in my life, but when we draw near, we can expect that God will show up because we're with him where he is. I think this was beautifully displayed in the story of Jackie in the book, Chasing the Dragon. There's a piece, a point in the story where this ministry was happening. These kids are coming off of heroin, this miraculous stuff, Jesus stepping in to literal and spiritual darkness through Jackie, this single lady from the UK, um, that the gang leaders, the, the top of the top, the triad who had control over this city started hearing about it and they requested a meeting for Jackie. This was very dangerous, she shouldn't have gone, um, but she went because she was, by this time, confident that the Lord was with her. Um, and she's, her story is very, very honest. She talks about her struggle. It was not all, you need to read it. It wasn't all good at all at once. Um, and she goes to this meeting and she does not know what to expect. It could have been anything. And she sits down with this triad leader and he looks at her and he says, you and I both understand power. I use it this way, he clenched his fist, and you use it this way, he pointed to his heart. You have a power I don't have. If my brother gets hooked on drugs, I have to beat him up. I don't want them on heroin, and I've found I can't make them quit, but I've watched you, and I believe Jesus can. Love to bring the worship team up. Come on up. Um, that power is the power to witness 
to the truth and the reality of Jesus and God's kingdom. And for all of us that have accepted Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, have received the forgiveness of our sins, life with God now, he gives us that same indwelling spirit, that same power to be his witnesses. With Jackie, had no business being in that meeting, had no business encountering the healing and the power of the salvation to these kids that had no interest in who she was. She had no right and no um, real um, expectation to see anything happen. But again, we're not going as we go on our own. And Jesus in the Great Commission, he ends it. And I will be with you every minute until the end of the age. I will be with you every minute at the end of the age. And so as Jackie stepped in, those that were in darkness stepped into the kingdom of light, became disciples of Jesus themselves, learning to do all that Jesus did, learning to live a life of love, learning to live in the way that he did, in the new way, in the way of the kingdom that will be forever. And as we bring that message, we say the kingdom of God will last forever and you're invited in and if you don't receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you'll be separated from God now and forever. But the good news is he has had compassion on our world and he wants us with him. He wants us near. I think it's really important as we think about this, um, one of the very clear objections I'll have is I think about David's, I read the book of Acts, or I think about David Wilkerson's life or Jackie's, it's like, okay, that's great, but I have a full-time job. I have three kids. Um, I am at home with four kids under the age of eight. Um, I, this, is, this is a little hard for me to take. I think about a story at the end of the book of John where Jesus is talking to Peter and he's telling them what, what Peter's gonna have to suffer and he's gonna suffer and die. And Peter looks back at John who's walking behind him and he says, well, what about John? And Jesus says, well, if, if, I, if I am okay with him staying until I come back, what is that to you? And he simply looks at Peter and he says, you follow me. You follow me. So these stories of these stories of what God has done and is doing in the world in his mission or the stories that we hear in our own body of what God is doing um, are meant to inspire and encourage us, but they should never move to comparison because Jesus is looking at us and he says, you follow me. Don't, don't, don't worry whether it looks big or, you're gonna, or, or it's gonna be some huge story or this is gonna happen or some miraculous thing is gonna happen. Don't worry about that. It can be the smallest thing. It can be the smallest moment in your day tomorrow just seeing someone in a new light and God calling you to take the smallest step. It can be a small step as praying and asking him to impart his love and his life to you so that you can carry that on into the world. Um, I know that I wanna look back on my life and see that I've partnered with God in his redemptive work and that I've seen his kingdom come through my life. I don't wanna settle. Um, I don't wanna settle for less than that. I hear these stories and I want God to do these things in Jersey Village. I want him to do it in our world. I want him to do it in our church and I know that he can and I know that he will and I know that as we seek him and as he gives us more of his heart, that we're gonna see him show up in beautiful and amazing ways. We'll read one last quote from Jackie and I'm praying and I'm done, I promise. Um, she wrote, 
um, in her book, I had written this book recording the history intending to inspire hope. Instead, I was invited to retell the story again and again. What I had meant was that you, the reader, might see that the same God could impart his heart and his power in your city and write your own books. Father, thank you um, that you are still on the move. Jesus, thank you that you are still the one that has compassion for a lost world. You're still the one who sees the needy. You're still the one who sees the poor. You're still the one who draws close to the marginalized. You're still the one who wants to come near the sinner, the one who needs a physician, the one who just, life is broken. You're still that one and, and we are your body, Jesus. We are your representatives here on earth. We are your body. And may we be your hands and feet together, together, individual parts, one body together. May we be your hands and feet to this world. And may we step in as you stepped in, in your power, in your authority. Give us your love. Give us your heart. We need it. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.